Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Amicus is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering a series of lectures about the impact that technology is having on the Constitution and our rights. The series, titled Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, Law and the Constitution in the 21st Century, is available right now at up to 80% off the original price if you visit thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. That's thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. And by MileIQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you're losing. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects logs and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Try MileIQ for free today by texting AMICUS, A-M-I-C-U-S, to 31996. That's AMICUS to 31996. Hello and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's Supreme Court correspondent. Now, next week, the Supreme Court is going to hear a major, major case about race and jury selection. This is a case with facts so strange, it all sounds a little bit like a John Grisham novel. Georgia prosecutors seeking to give black teenager Timothy Tyrone Foster the death penalty for the brutal murder of an elderly white woman in 1987 managed to eliminate all four prospective African-Americans from his jury pool. This happened at voir dire, which is the fancy French word for jury selection process. Now, there are two stages in jury selection where you can get rid of jurors. The first is called for cause, where you have actual reasons for getting rid of them, and you have to state those reasons. The second is called peremptory challenges, where you can just say, I don't like this juror, I want them to go. And we know that you cannot, even using peremptory challenges, boot a juror because of their race. And the Georgia prosecutors say that race had absolutely nothing to do with the jury selection in Foster's case. But Foster is a strange and weird appeal because decades after his case was tried, the prosecutor's notes from trial surfaced showing that they went through the jury surveys and marked every prospective African-American juror's name in a green highlighter and notating each of the black jurors as B number one, B number two, and B number three, also noting which person to keep, quote, if we had to pick a black juror, end quote. Now, when the prosecutors struck each of these black jurors in Foster's case, they always were able to proffer a neutral reason, like the juror had a son Foster's age, even though there were white jurors with sons who are Foster's age who were in fact seated. Now, the Georgia Supreme Court found nothing wrong with this system of jury selection. And on Monday morning, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to weigh in on whether Foster's jury was fairly selected. We have two guests with us today to discuss Foster versus Chapman. The first is Stephen Bright. He's president and senior counsel at the Southern Center for Human Rights. He'll be representing Foster at the court Monday. And Bright is kind of a legend in the Capitol Defense Bar. He teaches at Yale Law School, and we are so delighted to have him today on Amicus. Steve Bright, welcome to Amicus. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. 
Steve, I think in order to be completely clear, we need to start back in 1986 in Batson versus Kentucky when the Supreme Court says that you cannot use race when you're bouncing jurors. But it left open the possibility, and I think Thurgood Marshall wrote about this in his concurrence, that anyone smart enough to pass the bar could generate a race-neutral explanation and say, oh, no, no, we didn't strike him because of race. We just struck him because uh, he didn't make eye contact. So that was always the kind of fundamental failure of Batson, right? Absolutely. I mean, Justice Marshall, of course, had the advantage of he was the one member of the court who had actually tried cases. Uh, and he said right then, this is not going to work. And, and it's proven to be true because um, prosecutors can give almost like the one you just said, uh, the juror didn't maintain eye contact, the juror was bored, uh, the juror seemed hostile. Uh, there's no way to know whether those are true or not. Uh, we do know that uh, prosecutors distribute lists of race-neutral reasons before they've even seen the jury. So the, the reasons are actually supposed to be the actual reasons that that juror was struck. But in our world today, separating race out of that is impossible. It's interesting. I've been reading so much commentary on Batson leading up to this case. And in some sense, it looks like it was never going to work. And I wonder if the fundamental flaw at the heart of Batson was just putting way too much faith in trial judges and prosecutors. Yes, I think that's exactly right. We sort of have uh, wishful thinking for how we wish the people in the system would work, how the prosecutors would go about their business and that they would not let race uh, come into play uh, and that the judges would fairly judge these. The problem uh, is that when you're asking a judge uh, to find a Batson violation, it's two things. One, that the prosecutor intentionally discriminated on the basis of race and second, lied about it by giving a pretextual reason. In other words, the real reason was race, but the prosecution said the juror didn't maintain eye contact with me. It's very hard, particularly in the state system where the judges are elected, I think both politically and psychologically, uh, for a judge to look at that prosecutor, who he may have been in the district attorney's office with that prosecutor, he may have been the district attorney before he became a judge, uh, and say, that person intentionally discriminated and lied about it. That's just not going to happen most of the time. And yet we know, and this is so amply evident in the record in this case, that there is such a deep racial taint in the way prosecutors select juries across this country. It is beyond dispute that black jurors get bounced from juries in hugely consequential numbers. And I think it seems to me that looking at this case, the only reason we're able to talk about it in the Supreme Court on Monday is because we've got notes that prove it. Well, and that's what's unfortunate is, is so often some serendipitous factor uh, in Philadelphia. You know, there was a videotape released in which one of the senior prosecutors was training the younger prosecutors. And this is right after Batson had been decided that said, don't discriminate on the basis of race. And he's conducting a training session telling the young prosecutors how to base their strikes on race. 
and then he says, and be sure to take down a lot of notes when you strike the blacks because you're going to have to give reasons. So basically, the goal of many prosecutors, including these in the Foster case, uh, was not to comply with Batson and stop discriminating. It was to figure out a way to get around Batson and to continue what's been a historic practice throughout the history of this country of excluding black people from juries uh, and then find some way to get around it by giving these uh, so-called race-neutral reasons when everybody knows good and well what's going on. But, Steve, I think in order to be fair, we have to say that certainly the prosecutors in this case say, oh, the reason we used the highlighter and notated B1 was precisely because we knew we were going to face a Batson hearing and we were marking black and we were writing uh, B number one uh, precisely because we knew we were going to get called onto the carpet to defend these decisions. So I think if you're talking about the optics of this, you can certainly spin it the other way, too, right? Well, except that if the prosecutors wanted to get ready for a Batson challenge, what they should have done is not discriminated in selecting the jurors. Uh, and, and also that excuse or reason doesn't really hold up. I mean, the defense lawyers had come in and said, you know, they've always struck all the blacks. Uh, we think they're going to strike all the African-Americans again in this case. But the Supreme Court has decided this case called Batson versus Kentucky that says you can't do it. Uh, it's interesting that in that discussion, there was never a suggestion that there would not be a Batson hearing. Uh, there was never a suggestion that, that quite possibly there would be no need for one because the prosecutors would accept some African-Americans on the jury. It was just a matter of uh, the logistics of it. Once the prosecutor strikes all the blacks and all the juries have been picked, then we'll have the Batson hearing. The prosecutor will give the reasons. And it was handled in a fairly perfunctory manner, which is what generally happens with with regard to uh, striking of African-Americans in jury selection. And one thing I'd point out, too, this takes place out of the presence, usually, of the public and the media, uh, often in the judge's office or maybe up at the bench. And so people in the community come and they see a trial going on and there are no people of color in the jury, even in communities that are 20, 30, 40 percent African-American. And the people, well, gosh, isn't it interesting that every time we come to court, uh, the juries are all white and they don't understand that the reason for that is that the prosecutors are striking all the blacks and the judges are upholding it. Can you just put put yourself in the head of a prosecutor for a minute and and explain to me why they're so confident that striking black jurors is a smart initial move and that it's worth going through the contortions of justifying it later why why there's such a deep deep tradition particularly in the south of just saying we're going to default to all white juries well, I think what happened in this case is what happens so often, that people are just not treated as individuals but put in groups. I mean, the prosecutor said at one time this woman had the most potential of all the blacks in the jury pool as opposed to just treating her like one of many people, 50 people in, the, in this uh, pool from which the jury was selected. I, I think in this case the prosecutors uh, wanted the death penalty. Uh, they argued to the jury uh, to give the death penalty uh, to deter people in the projects, which were 90 percent African-American, 
and it is less likely uh, that that appeal and getting the death penalty, at least the prosecutors figured, uh, if they had African-Americans on the jury. Now, I think what Batson teaches is that you just have to accept people without regard to race, and if the jury decides not to impose the death penalty, you have to accept that. But I think when you've got young, ambitious prosecutors, as both these prosecutors were, um, they want to win at any cost. And if the cost is to strike all the blacks so that you have an all-white jury that's more likely to impose the death penalty, that's what they're going to do. Steve, it strikes me listening to you talk that there's such a common thread in so many of the kind of race doctrines we talk about on this show. And the thread is, look, we can't really search your heart. We don't know at the end of the day what's going on. But just don't be obvious, right? Don't be ugly about it. And we see that in the affirmative action cases. You know, we've seen that in so many uh, strains of constitutional law. It feels like at the end of the day, the Supreme Court at Batson said, just don't be yucky about being racist. If you're going to be racist, just do it quietly. And certainly, it seems that the takeaway of Foster is if you're going to be racist, don't put it on paper with a green highlighter. Uh, It seems like a very, very short-sighted and kind of naive view of how to combat entrenched racial discrimination in this country. Oh, it certainly is. I mean, when when a person, we've had a lot of attention in the country lately uh, to relationships between law enforcement and communities of color. Uh, what there's been too little attention to, in my opinion, is what happens to those people once they get in the criminal justice system, whether they're accused of a minor crime or whether they're accused uh, of, of a crime that carries the death penalty. Uh, there are all these discretionary decisions from whether to grant bail what to charge, what plea offer to make. If there's plea bargaining in the case, and 95% of all cases are resolved with plea bargains, uh, the striking of the jury. Uh, you have to remember 95% of all prosecutors in this country, or the chief prosecutors, are, are white. So the uh, criminal justice system does not reflect the society. And the decisions in these cases that have a tremendous effect on communities of color and, and are really destroying people and families and communities. Uh, these decisions are, are mostly being made by white people and mostly white men. I feel that it would be remiss, uh, Steve, if I didn't note that the murder of which Foster is accused is particularly grisly and heinous. I know that we have listeners who, the minute they hear about the facts of the case, and I'm sure it will be invoked at the Supreme Court on Monday, uh, are done with this conversation. Uh, What do you say when you have to contend with someone who says, this was a truly harrowing and horrific murder? Uh, He gets what he deserves. Well, it is a truly harrowing and horrific murder. It's an 18-year-old young black man and the murder of a 79-year-old white woman who had been a school teacher and was a beloved member of her community. Uh, at one time, the people of Rome would have simply taken Timothy Fuster out and hung him from a tree, and there would not have been a trial. But what we uh, endeavor to do now in the courts is to give people, even those accused of the most heinous crimes, the most uh, unforgivable crimes, uh, to still give them a fair trial. 
so that the community sees the verdict, uh, both the guilt-innocence verdict and also the penalty imposed, whether it's death or, or life, as legitimate and credible. And when you exclude a part of the community from participating, uh, when you say that there's no place for African Americans on the jury, uh, then that community is going to have less confidence uh, in the court system and, and in the judgments that, that it reaches. This was not a one-sided case with regard to penalty. I mean, Timothy Foster is intellectually disabled. He had the most terrific growing up imaginable. That doesn't excuse or explain away uh, what he did at all. He's guilty. He had to be punished. But the uh, alternative of life in prison uh, was available to the jury as well. And um, it certainly was not a foregone conclusion. Well, actually it was, but it should not have been a foregone conclusion that he was going to get the death penalty. Steve, I want to play for one moment a little bit of audio from the last time you argued a Batson case at the U.S. Supreme Court in 2008. The case was Snyder versus Louisiana and had to do with uh, jurors who were presumably challenged for neutral reasons, who were in fact determined to have been thrown off for race reasons. Now, you won that case seven to two. Uh, I wanted to listen to a little bit of oral argument. This is a colloquy between you and Justice Scalia that had to do with the specifics of just one juror, Miss Scott, who was presumably thrown off the jury because it was not clear if she could apply the death penalty. Let's have a listen to you and Justice Scalia trying to figure out what the prosecutors were really doing when they were questioning Scott. Here's the other point with Ms. Scott. It only took one question. Ms. Scott, what did you mean when you said, I think you could? I mean, that was in, in uh, Millerell, in uh, the opinion in Millerell, too. The fact that Fields wasn't asking any questions about the position of the death penalty, he'd express some. But if the prosecutor is... Well, these are peremptory challenges. And are, it seems to me if you have one, one uh, juror who says, I, th- I think I could, and another one who said, I could... I'm going to strike the one who said, I think I could. But, but Justice Scalia, there's no reason you wouldn't ask them what they meant. And that's what the prosecutors did with all the white jurors here. Every single one. It's only Ms. Scott, Elaine Scott, that there's no questions asked about the reasons they gave for striking her. So they had the opportunity to ask her what she meant. And they asked all 21 of the white jurors, they asked the uh, Ms. Did, did, did all 21 say, I think I could? No. All 21 said no. And then the prosecution asked them follow-up questions about what their beliefs were. So in those situations, the So I, I don't know. At the risk questions. of giving you flashbacks, Steve, if you um, remember back to arguing that case before the court and then poised to argue this week before the court, it seems such an incredibly fact-specific conversation that you're having. You're literally trying to get in the head of a judge and a prosecutor who are agreeing to strike a juror and to, I don't know, almost do a CAT scan of what their real motives are. It's so unlike most cases that come before the court because it's so fact-specific. And you're trying to make that determination on very circumstantial evidence. I mean, with the prosecutor saying, no, I struck this person for whatever reason. And you're looking at, well, did the prosecutor accept white jurors who had the same characteristic and strike the blacks? 
did the prosecutor ask what we were talking, I was talking with Justice Scalia about there was the court has said, if you're really concerned about a reason, uh, then you might ask some questions about it. Uh, one of the jurors here was struck because he was a member of a certain church, and the prosecutors represented that that church was against the death penalty and all its members were, even though the juror had said he could impose the death penalty. Well, all he had to do was ask one question. I mean, uh, Mr. Juror, uh, do you know what your church's position is on the death penalty? Uh, and maybe a second question, and if you do, do you follow it or not? Uh, in this case, it turned out the prosecutors actually had in their notes that the church did not take a position on the death penalty, so they totally misrepresented the facts uh, to the court, and that's in their notes. Uh, but also, they could have asked, there are so many times when just asking one or two questions would have told us either that the reason was valid uh, or that it wasn't. Uh, but all of this is done by uh, looking at all the evidence in the case and then trying to infer from the facts uh, what was going on. I mean, here it seems pretty clear because the prosecution developed a list of definite no's, people who absolutely were to be struck. And there were only six people on that list. And the first five were African-Americans, the only African-Americans left in the jury pool. The sixth was a juror who had said she could not impose the death penalty under any circumstances. So it was more important to strike the five African-Americans than the juror who was opposed to the death penalty. Uh, so uh, from the very start, the prosecution had prioritized for striking the African-Americans. Steve, I guess my last question to you is this. Given that you're not going to get the court to do away with peremptories, you're not going to get the court to fundamentally change the world of the Batson hearing that we now live in. Is the object here just to get five votes to say that in this one case, the prosecutors overplayed their hand? Uh, we were lucky enough to find the smoking gun and Timothy Tyrone Foster gets another chance to have a jury free of racial taint. Is that the most you can hope for? Or do you go into Monday's argument with some larger objective of moving the needle somehow in this conversation? Well, the objective, first and foremost, is what you first just described. I mean, my responsibility is to Mr. Foster, who's on death row and will be executed. And so we certainly hope the court will say, if ever there's a violation of Batson versus Kentucky, this is it. But the court could, in doing that, say, for example, that these demeanor reasons, which are virtually impossible to verify, uh, like saying the jurors are bored. Well, everybody's bored. So that's not really a reason for striking someone uh, and and that uh, trial judges should scrutinize these reasons more carefully and that if it appears that race was a substantial motivating factor in, in the striking of, of a juror or the jurors, uh, that trial judges should not allow it. And we should have more diverse juries that represent the communities because the jury is the conscience of the community. And in a death penalty case, it's particularly important that if the jury is the conscience of the community, that it be representative of the community. Stephen Bright is the president and senior counsel at the Southern Center for Human Rights. He will be representing Foster at the court on Monday 
Steve Bright, it has been just a privilege and a pleasure to have you on Amicus today. Thank you for joining us. Well, I've been glad to be on and thank you very much. Before we turn to our next guest, I want to tell you a little bit about one of our sponsors on today's show, The Great Courses. Now, most of you are listening to this podcast because, like me, you're completely fascinated by the law and the Constitution and you want to keep learning as much as possible. And that's the motivation behind The Great Courses. It includes over 500 courses in all sorts of subjects, ranging from law to math to yoga, available in audio and video formats. And these courses are taught by amazing experts, professors, real leaders in the field. I want to tell you today about the Great Courses series on privacy, property, and free speech, law and the Constitution in the 21st century. It's a terrific fit for Amicus listeners because it really probes questions that have to do with free speech, privacy, property, and the dizzying array of new technologies from Facebook to Google to Yahoo to Maps that really, really force us to rethink doctrine in each and every one of those fields. The Great Course has created a special limited-time offer for all of our Amicus listeners. You can order from eight of their best-selling courses, including Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, at up to 80% off the original price. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. That's thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. Now, before we turn to our next guest, we thought we'd take you a little bit ways back in the audio wayback machine to hear a little bit of sound from the opening of oral arguments in Batson versus Kentucky. Remember, Batson is the landmark 1986 case that establishes that peremptory challenges cannot be used to bump jurors merely because of their race. So have a little listen to then Chief Justice Warren Burger and J. David Niehaus, who argued the case. Mr. Niehaus, I think you may proceed whenever you're ready. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the issue presented today arose out of a state criminal proceeding in Jefferson County, Kentucky, in which the prosecutor employed four of the six peremptory challenges that were allotted to him under court rule to remove all black persons on the panel of jurors. These panel Joining us now is Glenn F. Ivey. He was elected to two terms as the state's attorney for Prince George's County, Maryland, serving from 2003 to 2011. He also served as an assistant United States attorney for the District of Columbia from 1990 to 1994. Glenn Ivey and a group of federal and state prosecutors filed an amicus brief in the Foster case. And Glenn, we're delighted to have you on the show. Welcome to Amicus. Thanks for having me. It's a real honor to be on the show. So I'm confused. Explain something to me as a former prosecutor. Peremptory challenges go all the way back, my research says, to 1166 uh, under British law. Everybody hates them because they're not fair, except prosecutors and defense attorneys just love them because they (laughs) need to be able to boot people off a jury on a hunch, right? Can you explain to me how something that feels so wrong can be so right? Well, uh, you know, let me say, let me start by saying I don't share the typical view that most trial lawyers have, generally speaking. I, I think we're sort of trained to think that, um, you know, we have this sixth sense and we can sort of tell when a juror is not going to go our way and, um, um, you know, we, you, you need to get them off the jury in advance even if you can't strike them for cause because they can scuttle your case otherwise. I, you know, my experience as a trial lawyer was, you know, a lot of times that I had folks get on the jury that I just knew were going to kill me, and they came out for us, and vice versa. So I, I think it's really hard to know um, 
you know, what, what, what people are really thinking. But it's, it's definitely deeply ingrained in uh, the trial bar, uh, civil and criminal. Now, you and a bunch of uh, prosecutors filed a really significant brief in the Foster case saying, look, on the one hand, uh, we're prosecutors and uh, the system exists the way it exists, but uh, this is too much. The facts of this case are too much. And you cite a number of briefs that show that fairly consistently studies just reveal that prosecutors strike African-American jurors at double or triple the rates of other jurors. Uh, And we see that in major studies out of North Carolina. We see that out of Louisiana. What do we do about the fact that this is such a systemic problem and that Foster is this one outlier case that really only gets to the Supreme Court, I think, because the prosecutor's put it in writing. Yeah, I mean, Foster gets to the Supreme Court because it was just so egregious and it was documented uh, explicitly. And uh, you just don't see that very often. In fact, I I have to think back. I don't know that I've ever seen it this explicit uh, since Batson came down. But but you're right. I mean, for for three decades, um, you know, as Justice Marshall predicted, it's continued to be a problem. And he called for the end of peremptory challenges. He said, we just need to get rid of them. Otherwise, there's no way to be sure that you're getting uh, sort of implicit bias out of the system, uh, or in this instance, explicit bias. And I'm starting to think he might be right. I think we're at the point now where the studies show that it continues to happen. I think there's, uh, you know, uh, some prosecutors' offices in the Department of Justice have made efforts to, to provide training or training manuals to move away from that. But you know, it's still around. It's just too pervasive. And I think we have to start looking seriously at just eliminating peremptory strikes altogether. We just got off the line with Steve Bright, who's going to be arguing this case on Monday at the Supreme Court. And one of the things that he said that I'm sure surprises you not at all is that 95 percent of the chief prosecutors in this country are white uh, and that those entrenched values that are baked into the prosecutorial system, the the judicial system, the jury selection system just kind of exist to continue to perpetuate the sense that we just do not want African-Americans on death penalty juries. But but you are an African-American prosecutor. And, and I guess I want to hear your view of, is it uh, the kind of thing that doesn't change until we have more black prosecutors? Or is something else going on that we're missing? You know, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, I've heard, you know, prosecutors of all kinds of, and trial lawyers for that matter, of all kinds of different backgrounds, racially and ethnically, who still uh, sort of adopt these kinds of views. And the other part to think about, too, is that most of these prosecutors are elected. And in the political process, um, politicians definitely think in terms of blocks of uh, voters along racial lines. You know, I'm going to go after the black voter, the white voter, the women's voter, whatever. And, you know, to the extent that carries over into the way they, they look at a courtroom, you know, you end up with this kind of stuff. You know, get, get blacks off the jury and that sort of thing. So I, I think it's there. Um, I think we do want to elect more black, Latino, female prosecutors uh, and the like. But I don't know that that's going to be enough to fix the problem. One of the things that I've read a, a lot 
about in the run-up to Foster is that the more you see African-Americans excluded from jury pools, the more apt they are to say the system doesn't work. And uh, Bob Barnes had a good piece this week in The Washington Post just showing the unbelievable gap in confidence in the justice system that has emerged in this country uh, between blacks and whites. And I wonder how much you think a case like Foster, where prosecutors, as you said, render in writing, (laughs) we are not going to have an African-American on this jury, how much that lends to the larger feeling, maybe even particularly post-Ferguson, that the whole game is fixed and that the system really does exist to make sure that uh, blacks do not get to participate in the system in a fair and equal manner? I mean, I think it's a real uh, uh, key component of the, uh, the sort of the gulf. I mean, for example, you know, you'll get a, a, a jury verdict, let's say Trayvon Martin, or even a grand jury decision for that matter, like in Ferguson. First question, out, not even just African-Americans, but the media what was the racial composition? And, um, you know, I think that you, frequently you find scenarios where there, there are no blacks or there are few blacks or they're underrepresented, you know, compared to the overall population. And it really does put whatever that, that uh, verdict is uh, in a different light. So I, I think it's, um, you know, problematic from that standpoint. Although I think, there, you know, the criminal justice system has challenges from start to finish, you know, there's disparities in arrest and, you know, uh, prosecution and then charging. I mean, it really kind of runs the gamut. But it, it certainly is another brick in the wall, I think, between law enforcement and some minority communities. Glenn, I wonder if you would help us, because I think it's very easy to look at this case through the lens of, you know, prosecutors are lying and then lying about lying. But it's got to be more complicated than that. Can you help us understand the argument that's being uh, advanced here, at least in Georgia, that these prosecutors were just making these notes because they were anticipating that they were going to have to justify their peremptories and that they think this way precisely because Batson and its progeny forces prosecutors to think about the racial composition of a jury? Well... It, it's it's kind of hard for me to defend because I mean, and look, I you know as you mentioned, I I was a prosecutor in two different offices and and in law school I was a student prosecutor in Boston and and uh, all of those offices I was taught not to track race, for example, in in the voir dire process for a variety of reasons, but you know, running afoul of Batson was one of those. And, and I, I, I do think it's a little hard to argue that, you know, we had to keep track of the race of these folks as we were picking them and they're sitting there right in front of me and that kind of thing. It, especially since the reasons that were given for the strikes at the time and then subsequently were all race neutral. So, you know, if, it's, if your reasoning is always race neutral, um, why do you need to track the race of the jurors? And then finally, to the extent you want to protect yourself against the Batson challenge, yes, somebody's got to keep track of the race of the jurors, but it wouldn't necessarily have to be the prosecutors. And so, in my view, this is not something prosecutors should do to start with. And uh, I, I think you really need to be careful about, you, you know, the, the post hoc rationalizations for why people were struck. Because I, I think to just a lot of these rang hollow, especially since 
a lot of white jurors had similar characteristics or behavior, and they weren't stricken from the jury by the prosecutor. So it's, I, I think it's a tough argument to carry the day. If the prosecution's conviction is affirmed, it'll have to be on other reasons, it would seem to me. So I just want to be clear that the amicus brief that you put your name to doesn't uh, seek to do away with peremptory challenges, but does seek meaningful uh, self-policing, better best practices, and a really meaningful attempt by prosecutors going forward to kind of track this kind of behavior and acknowledge it. Is that a fair assessment of what you're asking for when you weigh in with the court? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I might be a little farther along than a lot of my uh, my colleagues or former colleagues, but I think at a minimum you want to make sure you have uh, explicit training, especially when you get to serious cases like murders and uh, sexual assaults and the like, because you should know going in that those cases are going to get more serious scrutiny than the more minor cases. And so if you're violating people's constitutional rights, there's more likely you're going to have a serious case reversed. So just out of the the best interest of the prosecutor's office in that community, it seems to me, you'd want to be especially careful to make sure that you're observing all of those rights and, and protecting them carefully. I, I think um, National District Attorneys Association and the Department of Justice might want to have more explicit training opportunities along these lines, maybe training materials that are sent to prosecutors' offices. Some of these offices are very small and they they barely have enough resources to handle the cases. They've got much less generate training materials. But I think you want to have that happen at that level. And most states have uh, associations for the, the, the prosecutors in their state. I think you need to have that kind of training uh, as well. But at the end of the day, the folks that could really send a message that would be a wake-up call for lawyers across the country and especially prosecutors, that's the Supreme Court. They could send a lightning bolt from the court that would land in every courthouse in this country. And I hope they do that uh, when they render their opinion. It's interesting because I think Steve Bright really made the point, and I wonder what you think about it, that prosecutors and, and judges, particularly at the state level, particularly in the South, I mean, we're talking about cases that are coming up from Georgia and Louisiana, the so-called death belt, um, that they really reflect the values of their communities and that in a strange sense, it, of course, makes perfect sense to make sure that you are excluding black jurors because they're much less apt to give the death penalty. They're much less apt to be inclined to do what the prosecutors want. And that in a strange way, these are just rational decisions when prosecutors say, look, I'm going for the death penalty. And we know because the data shows us one African-American on the jury changes the odds uh, against me. So I wonder what you do about the fact, you know, you want a lightning bolt, you want a message that these are not best practices, but you certainly have a value system and a culture that says we want the death penalty. And moreover, it's irrational to put an African-American on the jury if uh, we know that they're going to undermine what I'm seeking to achieve. Yeah, I think it, the, the counter-argument is that it's unconstitutional to keep them off for those reasons. And, you know, the, the beauty of judicial review is that uh, in scenarios like this where people have political rationales for, for doing things that violate people's rights, the Supreme Court can force them to change their conduct. And this is one of those instances. So, you know, the right ruling from the court could enable prosecutors in those jurisdictions to say, 
you know, if they, they think they need this kind of cover, you know, yeah, I'd love to exclude blacks from my juries, but uh, the Supreme Court says I can't. I think it's a little pathetic if you're in a, if you're in a jurisdiction where that's what you have to say to get elected. That, I, I think that says more about those voters than it does about the Constitution. But, you know, at the end of the day, if the crime is the same, the trial needs to be the same. I don't think white defendants should get a different kind of trial than the black defendants. And we can't allow a system to uh, permit that or, or even uh, protect that. I think we have to make sure we do everything we can to, to move the system more towards an equal justice approach. Our guest has been Glenn F. Ivey. He was elected to two terms as the state's attorney for Prince George's County, Maryland, and served as assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia from 1990 to 1994. Glenn Ivey and a group of federal and state prosecutors filed an amicus brief in the Foster case. Glenn, thank you so very much for joining us today on Amicus. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, before we let you go today, we want to have a word from our other sponsor on today's show, Mile IQ. From appointments with clients, meetings, errands, unless you are chained to your desk physically all day long, then you are one of the 60 million Americans who drives for your job. And you're either spending way too much time tracking every mile or you're estimating and losing a bunch of money. Even then, your estimate could be as much as 20% less than what you're claiming. Mile IQ is the solution you've been looking for. Mile IQ is the number one mileage tracker app and is trusted by hundreds of thousands of Americans. Mile IQ is the only mileage tracker that detects logs and calculates your drives for you automatically. MileIQ is incredibly easy to use, keeps all of your drives securely stored in the cloud, and if you drive for work and you're not counting every single mile, you're burning money every time you drive. The average MileIQ user logs $547 a month in drives. MileIQ does all the work, letting you focus on what's important, and that's why they got a five-star rating in both the Google Play and iTunes app stores. So stop wasting your time manually tracking your mileage. Stop losing money you should be claiming. Try MileIQ for free today by texting AMICUS, A-M-I-C-U-S, to 31996. That's AMICUS to 31996. And that is going to do it for another episode of Amicus. But our operators are all standing by to hear what you thought of today's show. Our email is amicus at slate.com, and we truly love your letters. If you have not already, please consider sharing any warm and fuzzy feelings you may have about our show on the iTunes page. You will find that by searching Amicus in the iTunes store and clicking the Ratings and Reviews tab. Your reviews are a great way to tell other people how to find out about the podcast. You can listen to all of our past episodes at slate.com slash amicus. If you're a Slate Plus member, you'll find transcripts there as well. If you're not, you can become one at slate.com slash amicus plus. Thank you, as always, to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. Our producer is Tony Field. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Excerpts from all Supreme Court public sessions are provided by our partners at OYE, a free law project at Chicago Kent College of Law, part of the Illinois Institute of Technology. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of amazing podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We'll be back with you soon for another edition of Amicus. This is the story of The One. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.